You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Anyway, as I say, thank you for joining us this morning. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, if you would. We'll get straight into the scripture this morning. We're looking at foundations in Genesis chapter 2, foundations for the rest of the Bible. Virtually every doctrine, every major doctrine of the Bible finds its foundation in the opening chapters of Genesis. So we'll pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, And while we're at it, you might want to put your finger in Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be going to that a bit later on. Genesis 2, 7. The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. How things have changed. How many of us are happy to show off our naked bodies to all and sundry? Not many of us, I'll bet. And yet there was a time when to be naked was the most natural thing in the world. Adam and Eve were not ashamed or embarrassed by their naked bodies in front of each other. Of course, I imagine that they were both pretty hot to look at. After all, this is after God had finished creating everything, including Adam and Eve, and straight after, he declared it to be very good. So I doubt they were overweight and wrinkly and droopy in all the wrong places. But still... Even the most beautiful amongst us today are not inclined to go out in public naked. There's still some sense of shame about it. Even if we're only wearing shorts or a bikini, we still make sure to cover up our private parts. Funny how virtually every culture on earth has some sort of covering for their genitalia. It wasn't that way in the beginning. Funny how we're born naked, 
and very quickly covered up. Now we won't see until the, the next chapter of Genesis what triggered the great cover-up, but there are some today, newsworthy because they're such rare exceptions, but some for whom public nudity is a matter of pride and personal freedom. There's an area in the middle of the city of San Francisco where people strut around naked in public. From what I understand, it's mostly wrinkly old men who go there. I can't say I'm surprised by that. Then there's Maslin's Beach in South Australia, the first legal nude beach in Australia. I went, went there once when I was a young man out of curiosity and youthful rebelliousness. And it too was mostly populated by old farts strutting their stuff. It's funny how there's such stigma associated with nakedness that you don't see naked people at the supermarket or in the office or on the football oval. Thank God public nudity is still an oddity. But clothing wasn't part of the original creation. When God created the first couple, there was a sweetness, an innocence about their bodies. Indeed, an innocence about their whole relationship. Married couples generally know a little of this sense of feeling comfortable naked before each other. They know each other much more intimately than most people know another person. And as a result, they feel less embarrassed with each other. But even then, there's still frequently some degree of discomfort about their bodies. Now, the nakedness spoken of here is more than just unclothed bodies, of course. It also speaks of sinlessness. Because there was no sin yet, there was also need to, no need to keep anything hidden between them. There were no secrets. There was no shame. And the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai is the Hebrew words, the Lord God takes this innocent couple and joins them together in the first marriage in human history. That's what our passage today is all about, the marriage of the first two human beings, Adam and Eve. Now you may have noticed, however, that it's not declared anywhere in the text that this is actually a marriage. That information comes later in the Bible. This is just the beginning of the Bible's teaching on marriage. Like all the other doctrines, it's here in embryonic form. As I mentioned when I first started this series in Genesis, the foundations for pretty much everything in the Bible are laid in this book, and many of them in this, these opening chapters, and marriage is one of them. You might also notice there's nothing here, nor anywhere else in the Bible, that suggests marriage is an institution controlled by the government. Biblically, there's actually no place for governments to define what marriage is, nor to decide who may or may not marry. That's God's prerogative. That's God's choice based on his original design. Now, consistently throughout Scripture, marriage is, designed, is defined as one man and one woman, joined together by God to become one flesh. Not one man and many women. Not two men or two women. Not even one man followed by a succession of women. Now there's a few things about marriage that are implied in this passage that are spelled out more clearly later on in Scripture. But before I go on to what is implied here, let me just show you why this is called the first marriage. You'll recall that Adam declared when he first laid eyes on Eve 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Where else in Scripture have we heard that? Have we heard that phrase, one flesh? Primarily we've heard it from the lips of Jesus himself, the one who should know because he created Adam and Eve. When the Pharisees were trying to trip up Jesus, they asked him about marriage and divorce. They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is Matthew 19. Jesus replied, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a direct quotation from our text in Genesis chapter 2. They're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man separate. Clearly Jesus believed that this was the first marriage back there in Genesis chapter 2. And it set the the pattern for every true marriage since. Now there's something profound that happens when a man and a woman are brought together as husband and wife. There's a joining together in some sense, some way that's not able to be measured. But let's be real, it is a genuine joining together nonetheless. So we'll push on, we'll come back to the implications of this later on. We know that God was intimately involved in the creation of the first two human beings. The animals, he spoke into being, but he formed Adam out of the dust of the earth. He didn't just speak him into being, he formed him, he shaped him. And he fashioned Eve by an act of divine surgery, taking one of Adam's ribs and shaping it into a woman. Thus, as Adam said, after surveying all the animals, all the animal kingdom to learn that there was no suitable companion for him amongst the animals, that this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and they shall become one flesh. Don't get the idea that Eve was an afterthought because she was created after Adam, and after Adam had checked out all the other animals to see that there was none, no fit companion for him amongst them. She was not plan B. She was not created as a lower creature or a second-class citizen. God had already and previously declared that he was going to create a suitable companion for Adam. Now you'd be inclined to think that a sinless man in a perfect environment and in unbroken fellowship with God would need nothing more. But God himself has said that it's not good for man to be alone. Because God our creator should know what's best for us. And that's worth keeping in mind as you read the rest of the Bible. Anyway, I think God deliberately paraded all the animals past Adam firstly so that Adam would see that no animal was right for him. And maybe also that Adam would get the point that the natural order is male and female together. Not a single one of the multitude of animals was was suited to Adam. So God's preparing Adam for the gift of Eve by making him aware of his difference to the animals, his otherness to the animals, making him aware of his lack of companionship among the animals. And therefore, 
aware of his loneliness. Now it's obvious that humans and animals are different orders of beings. It should be obvious to anyone with eyes to see that man and woman are designed to go together. They are equal and yet they are different. And at the same time, they are complementary. Man and woman are the same in so many ways and yet so very different as well. Man and woman have the, virtually the same anatomical structure but what differences there are in anatomy are clearly designed for different purposes and clearly designed to fit together to make something that is greater than the sum of the parts. All of humanity, born since our first parents, Adam and Eve, carry these same qualities of equal, different and complementary. And because we know that God is perfect in all he does, we know that we are created this way for a reason. God doesn't make mistakes. God isn't subject to accidents. I know I'll get in trouble from, from, from some parts of society for saying this, but it also seems blindingly obvious to me that if God meant man to partner with man, he would have created two men in the beginning. If he meant us to be polygamous, he could have created Adam and three Eves. He could have created any combination he wanted to. But he didn't. He created man and woman. And he created them not to be identical, not to be carbon copies of each other, but to complement each other. Hence we have many, many areas of overlap, but also many areas that belong essentially to either the male or the female exclusively. And we as Christians should make no apology for that. After all, if we truly believe that God knows what he's doing, then we should be prepared to accept and stand by his design and face the consequences of opposition, if that's what it comes to. And right from the very beginning, it was not good for man to be alone, to be isolated. I touched on this the other week when I mentioned the problems, mental and physical and social, that come from isolation. And because of this, God created the perfect companion for man, a woman. And he did it for a number of reasons. The most obvious, of course, is the propagation and continuation of the human race. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, God told them in Genesis 1.28. And the male and the female bodies are designed to do that beautifully. And not only are they designed for reproduction, as if we were mere animals driven to mate, but they're designed to make the event enjoyable, pleasurable. It's a truly marvellous design, and it's God's design. God knows about pleasure, and he has created us to enjoy certain things, including the marital act. That's not the only purpose he created us for. What are some of the things that this passage teaches us about marriage and about the relationship between man and woman. It's important, firstly, that we understand that God's original design, we understand God's original design because the institution of marriage has been under attack for several decades now. And the roles and the relationships between sexes are becoming increasingly blurred and are in some cases done away with entirely. Let me warn you, though, 
If you choose to stand by what scripture reveals about this, be prepared to set your face against the storm that will come against you from society. Don't be naive and imagine that you can hold to this belief and society will pat you on the back for your convictions. Far from it. If you're lucky, all will happen as you'll be accused of being on the wrong side of history. If you're not lucky, you run the very real risk of being denounced as outdated, unloving, homophobic, even wicked, and potentially charged and jailed for hate crimes. That is increasingly the direction that Western culture is heading. If you're not prepared for that, you may as well just roll over now. Anyway, what do we learn from this passage? Firstly, marriage is, as I said, only between a man and a woman. God created only one Eve for Adam, not several Eves, nor another Adam. That tells us something about God's intention in marriage. For as I said, he could have created any combination he wanted to, but he didn't. And he didn't for a very good reason, which we'll get to later. Marriage is intended to be monogamous. A marriage is between two equals. Adam said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Eve was in no way inferior to Adam. She was of the same flesh as him. There's not a superior and inferior partner in a relationship. She is part of him. She's not a lower creation. Matthew Henry wrote beautifully, The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam. She was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. She was created to be both equal to him and a companion for him. In fact, the classic passage about marriage in Ephesians 5 tells us that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, nourishing and cherishing her. Thirdly, again, there's no suggestion of inferiority in this passage. For God made Eve as a helper fit for him, suitable for him, comparable to him, as some translations put it. The Hebrew word used here for helper has no suggestion of inequality. In fact, it's often used in scripture to speak of God's help for those in distress. The idea is that she completes him, that she is the missing part. The husband needs and depends on his wife. Fourthly, this union between man and woman is meant to be permanent. As Jesus said, what God has joined together, let not man separate. A man is united to his wife and they become one flesh. How can you separate the parts out once they're joined together as one? How do you pour the water from two different rivers into the one glass and then separate them out? You can't. As one commentator puts it, this is the language of covenant commitment. Humans are never more like the covenant-keeping God than when they pledge themselves in covenant to one another. And marriage pictures God's covenant relationship with his people. 
That means that divorce, except under very specific and limited circumstances, is not really an option. Or at least, it shouldn't be an option for Christians. Sadly, the rate of divorce in Australia is, I believe, somewhere around 50% of marriages. And even more sadly, the rate of divorce amongst Christians is no different to that amongst non-Christians. How far we have all strayed from God's original and very good plan. If only people went into marriage with the mindset that failure is not an option. If only they determined to work with all their might to ensure that the marriage lasted. There's nothing pleasant about divorce. Take that from someone who's been divorced himself. Even an amicable divorce is painful. It hurts everyone. It hurts the couple. It hurts the extended family. It hurts the friends. It hurts any children. There are none who are unaffected by divorce. And it can be particularly hurtful for the woman who may be plunged into poverty after the divorce, potentially left homeless, needing to work two jobs to provide for a roof over her head and to feed her children. Women almost always bear a greater cost in divorce than men do. And children too can suffer. Having spent some years in a role working with troubled teenage boys, I've seen the emotional and relational damage that can occur in fatherless households. Now, I'm not suggesting that a marriage breakdown guarantees these problems, but it certainly opens the door to them. And it's not necessary if only we would work to make our marriages successful. Fifthly, and related to the last point, a man must put his wife first above every other interest, except, of course, God. He leaves his father and his mother, and he cleaves, he holds fast to his wife. That doesn't necessarily even mean that he leaves the family home. In ancient times and in many societies today, there are several generations under the one roof. Farmers, for example, traditionally live on the family farm along with their parents and maybe even their grandparents. But it does mean that his priorities and his responsibilities change. No longer are mum and dad and his siblings his world. Now his wife is, or at least she should be. As anyone would, any woman would tell you, a mummy's boy is not a very appealing catch. This language of holding fast to his wife is the language of covenant. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, when Israel forsakes the Lord, it says that Israel leaves him. And when Israel is obedient to the covenant, it talks about holding fast to the Lord. That's the picture here in this language. The man is to hold fast to his wife in a covenant relationship. Hold fast to her and not let go. Mel made an interesting observation about this passage many years ago. She pointed out that the text reads, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Not that a woman should leave her father and mother. This may explain why it is that women tend to remain closer to their parents after marriage than men do. I wouldn't make a doctrine out of it, but the man is the one commanded to stop being the mummy's boy. So gents, don't get annoyed 
at your wife as she seems particularly close to her mother. It's built into her. Sixthly, sixthly, that's hard to pronounce. The man has, as much as many people nowadays would deny it, some form of authority over the woman. This is controversial. But Paul makes the point when he's writing about proper behaviour in the church that man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's a difficult passage to properly understand in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9. And it's a controversial passage because it says something that's not popular in our modern egalitarian society. It's easy to take offence at what Paul says there if we read it in isolation. And there's no doubting that this has been abused many, many times in history and in the church. But if we ignore what Paul also says in Ephesians 5 about a husband laying down his wife, we have no balance. I won't spend any more time on that, but this concept of authority within a marriage is important in the big picture of what earthly marriage represents. So, enough of that. What is the big picture? All of humanity born since Adam and Eve carry these same qualities of equal, different and complementary. And because we know that God is perfect in all he does, we know we are created this way for a reason. And we know that God doesn't make mistakes and that God isn't subject to accidents and God doesn't need backup plans. When he designed something, you can be sure he's designed it that way because it's the best way. And he has some purpose in designing it that way. And that's true of his creation of male and female, Adam and Eve, and his design for marriage too. As I hinted at earlier, the original marriage was a picture of something more, something greater. And for that, we need to go to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you'd open your Bibles up to that, Ephesians 5, and we'll start in verse 22, where it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Human marriage 
as important as it is in its own right, represents something much more than just itself. It represents the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. The whole Bible builds towards this. Every marriage between two of God's people in the Bible is another piece in a jigsaw puzzle that is this beautiful picture of Christ and his church. Some pieces of the, of the puzzle picture it more clearly than others, but they all contribute in some way. The marriage of Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis chapter 24 is a beautiful example. I won't go into that right now, but I suggest you read it for yourself. It sheds much light on the ultimate marriage of Christ and the church. So the purpose of anyone becoming a Christian today and throughout all history is not only that we would be saved from eternal destruction, it's also to prepare a bride for Christ. That's what Paul is saying in this passage in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, he says. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. That's why the very first ma- that's what the very first mas- marriage was pointing to. A time when the church, all believers in every age and in every place, will be prepared and united as a bride to her groom, Jesus Christ. That's why it matters that marriage is specifically between a man and a woman. It's nothing to do with homophobia or patriarchy or any other accusation that's levelled at Christians who hold to the traditional understanding of marriage. It's not even because God said so, although that should be sufficient in itself. Rather, it's theological. It's because anything else, gay marriage, polygamy, shacking up, ruins the picture of Christ and his bride. It tells a false story. It's also why there's some sort of leadership and authority structure in the relationship between husband and wife. Because the picture of the wife submitting to her husband is really the bigger picture of the church submitting to Christ. That's what Paul told us in verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 5. Unless you think the woman in the relationship is a victim of patriarchal oppression and and aggression, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a sacrificial aspect On the man's side of marriage, there's meant to reflect the sacrifice that Christ made for the church. The husband is to work gently but tirelessly for the purity of his bride. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honour by all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So Christ works tirelessly, to perfect his bride, sanctifying her, washing her with the water of the word, so that she might be holy and without blemish, that she might be undefiled. It's a picture of gentleness, but it's also a picture of relentlessness. And then there's the covenant relationship in human marriage that reflects the unbreakable covenant 
the unbreakable heavenly covenant between Christ and his bride, nourishing and cherishing the relationship as Christ does the church. Even the ancient practice, the biblical practice, of a bride being selected for the son by his parents reflects this heavenly relationship where all Christians, the bride, are chosen by God. Jesus says just this in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus chooses his bride. And we haven't been able to do justice, of course, to the biblical concept of marriage today. But I hope you've seen a little from Genesis and some more from the rest of the Bible to help you understand more of what marriage is, why marriage is important, and why we need to hold to the concept of marriage as it's revealed in Scripture. Why, ultimately, is it important that we understand what marriage is according to the Bible? Why is it all important that we hold carefully to God's design? because it's not just an institution designed for our benefit. It is that, but it is so much more. Far more importantly, marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. And every marriage that is modelled on God's design, every marriage that is held in honour, every marriage that functions in the ways God intended from the beginning reveals another part of the gospel message. Now, it's not a clear exposition of the gospel, but it's a visible picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of our Saviour laying down his own life for his bride, that one day he might be joined together with her in perfect, holy and sinless union for all eternity. So husbands and wives, young people considering marriage, lonely singles, whatever you may be, remember that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is upheld by godly marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word reveals to us things that are controversial, unacceptable in some modern society, hated by many, uh, concepts that we will be ridiculed for holding to. But Lord, your word is true, your word is good. Your word is powerful, Lord. And we choose to hold to what you reveal to us in your word. Lord, we will uphold the truth of marriage between one man and one woman for life as a unbreakable covenant because it reflects Christ and his bride. Lord, I know personally the pain of marriage breakdown and divorce. Lord, I pray for those who have experienced divorce. I pray for those who are considering divorce, Lord, that you'll bring comfort, that you'll bring healing, that you'll bring your grace to wash over that pain. Lord, we know that mistakes we have committed in the past, sins we have committed in the past, are covered by your blood, Jesus. And Lord, we receive 
your healing and your forgiveness with gratitude, with humility. We acknowledge, Lord, so many things in our lives, marriage and other things that we haven't properly upheld, that we haven't properly reflected you in. And Lord, we pray that your blood will wash those things away forever. And Lord, we pray that the mistakes we've made you will still use for your glory and for our benefit. I pray for marriages everywhere, not just Christian marriages, Lord, but amongst non-Christians, amongst other religions as well, Lord, that they will be strong, that they will resist the attack of society, the attack of the enemy to destroy marriages. Where marriages are on the rocks, Lord, I pray that you'll shine a light on hearts and attitudes and that you'll bring a humility and a repentance so that those marriages may be restored. Pray, Lord, for those who are lonely, that you'll bring companionship to them, whether that be in the form of a, a husband or wife, or just in the form of a good, close friend that can help to fill that empty hole of loneliness. I pray for young people, older people even, who are considering marriage, that you'll write the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in marriage between Christ and his bride on their hearts and give them, Lord, a conviction that nothing shall shake and nothing shall break their marriage. Lord, in so many ways, marriage is under attack and has been for so many decades now. And Lord, we confess that we are weak to resist it without your strength. We are weak to stand in the face of that onslaught without your empowering Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will strengthen each one of us, will put steel in our spines, Lord, to stand against all opposition and every attempt to destroy the institution of marriage in our society. Lord, may we reflect you in ways that are godly and true in all that we do. I pray this in your name, Jesus, husband of this bride that is believers in every age. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.